0: Hello, and welcome back to our podcast series, On the Top Shelf, which deals with topical issues in IFRS that impact clients operating in the retail and consumer industry. My name is Shriya, and I am a Senior Manager in PwC's Accounting Consulting Services. Today, we're going to be focusing on the hot new standard that is soon coming our way, IFRS 17 Insurance Contracts. With IFRS 17's implementation date fast approaching, it is important for corporates alike to understand that IFRS 17 will not only impact insurers, but may actually impact other entities as well. Hopefully, after this podcast, one will be unable to claim ignorance about IFRS 17. Today, I'm joined by Dierwald van den Berg, a partner in the PwC financial services practice. Welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you, Shreya. It's great to be here. This is definitely a hot topic at the moment. I'm sure your listeners are wondering why there's an insurance expert on a retail podcast. But the reality is, there are a number of arrangements that could trigger IFRS 17 impacts and effects for entities that do not perceive themselves to be insurers. The issue is, that corporates often enter into arrangements or structures that can be seen and do expose them to risk um, and, and I think we see quite often when we pick up those arrangements today in IFRS 4 where the standard is not that prescriptive with regards to measurement or presentation um, you can get away with that but IFRS 17 changes all that
0: hmm, dear Valt you make a very valid point and I think the clock is ticking down until IFRS 17 becomes mandatory,
1: right? Yes, IFRS 17 is effective for annual reporting periods beginning on or after 1 January 2023.
0: That's practically right around the corner. Now, I want to unpack that point you raised just now about not identifying insurance structures in the corporate space. I agree, I think it really can be missed quite easily. And that's why we thought we should deep dive into this issue on the podcast. In today's session, we'd like to focus specifically on cell captive arrangements because we feel that these structures are commonly overlooked. Now I understand that there are two types of arrangements that are housed in cell captive structures, and I think these are broken down into first party and third party arrangements well, can you help walk us through some of the key differences and how we can identify those?
1: Sure. Let's tackle first-party self-captive arrangements first. In a first-party self-captive arrangement, I'm basically insuring myself or other members within my group of companies. Let's say a retailer has a large fleet of trucks. Now, traditional insurance for those type of risks tend to be quite expensive because... You almost have a fixed minimum amount of losses that you expect every year. A- and the insurer's price for that with a bit of a profit margin on top of that. So the retailer may then, instead of you know ensuring that with a commercial insurer, decide to take out a first-party sell captive structure. And, and, and if you do that, I think it also serves as an incentive to better manage the fleet risk. But let, let me explain. Practically, a cell insurer will subscribe for a special class of share in an insurance company. It could be a preference share or a different class of ordinary share. And then they would also enter into a cell shareholders agreement in terms of which the cell owner is responsible to ensure that the cell always has sufficient capital to cover any claims under insurance policies issued from within that cell. So the cell owner will then enter into an insurance policy with the cell captive insurer to ensure the cell owner's own risks and it's important it's their own risks. Um, so it could be my fleet of trucks as I've just mentioned, or the risks of potentially you know subsidiaries or related parts within the group th- through the cell. Claims will then be paid to the insured out of any funds that are within the cell. Therefore, the cell will not go into a deficit position or incur a loss on an overall basis because there's this requirement to always maintain, maintain the share capital. So if there's claims, it comes out of money that you've already put in. So practically, it means that the cell shareholder, being the retailer, accepts all insurance risk back from the cell due to the circular flow of insurance risk.
0: That makes sense, vault. It seems to sound like a type of self-insurance. You mentioned this circular flow of insurance risk. Maybe another example there could be that a retailer uses first-party insurance, you know, to insure its own distribution centers and stores. So, Devald, can I just pick your brain on what happens in a situation where the cell does not have sufficient funds to pay out claims?
1: What we typically see is that the corporate entity must at all times, in terms of that cell-shell disagreement, ensure that the cell remains financially sound and quite often it goes hand in hand with what we call claims limitation clauses so the the agreements would basically state that a claim would only be paid once there are sufficient funds within the cell to pay so um, the fund would always the cell would always be financially solvent before and after you've paid any claims
0: okay i see i follow could you maybe help us unpack at a high level what the typical accounting outcomes of a cell like that would be?
1: That's a good question, Shriya. And, and the burning question that we need to think about in these arrangements is, is there a transfer of significant insurance risk to the cell captive insurer? It's in, and it, I think it's very important that we do this assessment both at a group level and at a standalone financial statement level. we in south africa we're a bit different where we do apply RFRS to our standalone financials as well so it is important that we consider that in the group scenario or example we've just chatted about the insurance risk always remains with the cell owner or the retailer as the arrangement has got that circular flow of insurance risk as we've explained as you mentioned it's a type of self insurance The, the arrangement is similar to the cell owner having placed funds in a deposit that is basically readily available to draw down if there are any insurance losses suffered in the business. It's however important to be on the lookout for scenarios where there are, for example, some sort of catastrophe risk elements, which are reinsured to external reinsurers. So it could be that within the cell, let's say my my fleet of trucks example, if there's more than 10 um, trucks destroyed, then maybe reinsurance kicks in. And that goes to an external reinsurer, like, for example, a Swiss Re. In that scenario, the group has transferred insurance, insurance risk. From a standalone entity perspective, though, where the parent entity enters into a self shelter's agreement and operating subsidiaries enters into insurance policies, the parent entity in its standalone financial statements may need to apply IFRS 17 due to the acceptance of insurance risk from the cell insurer. And, and that comes from the insurance policies issued to operating entities that would claim against the sale insurer. So from a standalone perspective, there's insurance risk transfer.
0: You make a very good point, Devald, there around South Africa and our particular focus on separate financial statements, certainly not an area to be neglected. Um, Thanks for your explanation thus far. And I think it's all pretty sensible, right? And I think it would certainly make sense for the entity to go ahead and then recognize an asset This is because, you know, from what you've just explained, I can see that the accumulated funds within the cell will then be payable to the cell owner through, for example, claims or dividends. Therefore, I'm thinking that maybe for a first-party cell captive, would that likely be within the scope of IFRS 9? Am I on the right track?
1: Exactly right for those scenarios where there isn't any external reinsurance. Where there is, is external reinsurance in place, corporates need to think whether the current accounting policy that they have for accounting for insurance contracts adequately address the, especially the asset component in in these kind of arrangements, because remember you've subscribed for that special class of shares. So you've put money with the sell insurer. Now, this is a component that's often overlooked um, and, and it's very relevant in terms of the, and I think it's so relevant when we think about the guidance in IFRS 17. Now, historically we had to come up with an accounting policy, um now there's a standard that does actually tell us how to account for insurance contracts and even though the holder of an insurance contract is scoped out of 17 there's still guidance with how to deal with deposit components in these kind of contracts and the last thing not to forget about is and we're not going to I'm not going to talk about it because I'm not a tax expert but don't forget about the tax implications for these contracts
0: that's very interesting, dear Walt. So, key messages always think about your tax and watch out for reinsurance within a first party cell. So, moving on from this point, how do third party cell captive arrangements tend to differ from this scenario?
1: The, the main difference between a first party and a third party cell captive arrangement is whose risks are being insured ultimately. In a first party arrangement, as we've said, it's the corporate entity's own risk that are being insured. In a third-party arrangement, it is most often the corporate entity's customers' risk being insured. But let me give you a couple of examples. If, if you take out a mortgage loan when you buy a house, they'll require for you to take out credit life and they would often offer you credit life insurance um, as well as the loan. Or if you maybe buy some furniture items on credit, you'd also be um, able to, to buy some credit life insurance with that. Or even um, your mobile phone operators, they'll offer you handset insurance on your mobile phone. So these retailers may not have their own insurance licenses to do this. And therefore, they will team up with a cell insurer who will underwrite these products. Now, the common cell insurers that we see in our market is GuardRisk, Centrique, Hollard and Old Mutual. So be on the lookout for those.
0: Okay, dear so the distinction would be to understand whose risk is being insured in order to determine if we're working with a first-party or a third-party cell captive arrangement. I would assume then that the third-party cell captive would be set up in a similar way as a first-party cell, right?
1: Precisely so. A third-party cell is also created by a shareholder's agreement in which the cell owner subscribes for a special class of share in the cell insurer. As with first-party arrangement, the corporate must ensure that the sale remains financially sound at all times. The insurance contracts later issued are, however, not with the corporate entity, but rather with third-party customers.
0: So, taking this into account, surely the accounting for the third-party sale captive arrangement would actually differ vastly from the first-party arrangements we just spoke about, right?
1: Definitely. Like you mentioned earlier, First-party cell captive arrangements are often in scope of IFRS 9, or if, it, if there is transfer of insurance risk through that external reinsurance, an entity may apply their own accounting policy developed for insurance contracts. And again, don't forget that asset component, very important. A third-party self-captive arrangement of a corporate entity would actually, in all likelihood, fall within the scope of the new insurance contract standard IFRS 17 as there is a scenario under which the cell owner would make significant loss, and then would be required to recapitalize the funds in the cell structure. And through that, they accept significant insurance risk from the cell insurer. I think it's important to note that the fact that there's a recapitalization clause in those contracts also lends credibility to the commercial substance of such an event happening where you could incur a loss, which would then put you into IFRS 17
0: thanks dear vault following your logic thus far right so if i think about it differently right in a third party cell captive arrangement maybe one could look at it as a type of inward reinsurance for the corporate because in this instance the cell owner our corporate or our retailer in a third party cell arrangement acts as the reinsurer in this contract because they're going ahead and insuring the risk within the cell and we'll need to recapitalize that cell if any claims are to be paid out from the cell and result in a potentially financially unsound position, like you've just mentioned, right?
1: Yes, precisely. The cell owner, i.e. the corporate, is a reinsurance contract issuer and therefore will apply after 17 insurance accounting principles. The cell insurer, the registered insurance company, is therefore a reinsurance contract holder and will apply the reinsurance accounting guidance within IFRS 17.
0: This is very helpful, dear I like how you've outlined the different perspectives just now. I can now also see how easily one can get confused when dealing with these types of structures and therefore how important it is to have a full and well-rounded understanding of these cell arrangements. Now that we understand how cell captive arrangements can get scoped into IFRS 17, how would you briefly describe the accounting impacts as a result of the standard?
1: Hmm. If I can sum up at a high level, some of the considerations, I think first of all, IFRS 4, which is our current insurance accounting standard is not prescriptive when it comes to presentation requirements in the income statement or balance sheet. This is very different from IFRS 17's consequential amendments to IAS 1, which contains very specific income statement presentation requirements. Therefore, what is currently being done by entities in terms of IFRS 4 will most likely be very different to what is required once the entities move to IFRS 17. As an example, the income statement in terms of 17 must include the insurance revenue line, as well as an insurance service expense line the IFRS 17 standard defines what would be seen as revenue and what would be seen as a service expense thus impacting what is presented on the face of the income statement the other areas is that the measurement requirements of the new standard are also significantly different from what entities do today
0: thanks dear Walt, for that insight so let's try and take a step back and make this practical. Let's say I'm a corporate and I'm in the data gathering process. I'm thinking about what to do or what to ask when I'm looking to assess the impact of IFRS 17 on my cell captive arrangements. Now we often get this question around what kind of information should one be asking their cell captive insurer for? Do you have any insight on that point?
1: Well, Shea. The data requirements actually depend on which measurement model you're going to be applying to account for the underlying insurance contract that you've entered into the data requirements can actually become very onerous and it's very extensive, particularly if you're doing what we call the general model, which is the default model. I don't think we've got enough time today to get into that level of detail in this one podcast.
0: Thanks for that, dear Walt. It sounds like we should already be gearing up for another episode with you. One seems like simply not enough. But since you've brought up the point around measurement models, can you help me understand what the typical measurement model considerations are for cells that are in the scope of IFRS 17? IFRS 17
1: has three measurement models, but of these three I would say two stand out that could be applicable to commonly seen cell captive structures. The first is the general model, and then we've got a simplified model on the general model, which is called the premium allocation approach. Now, the general model is the default model that is applied to all insurance contracts. IFRS 17 requires a company that issues insurance contracts, the corporate in our example, to report them on the balance sheet as the total of fulfillment cash flows. Now that is the current estimate of amounts that the insurer expects to collect from premiums and pay out for claims, benefits and expenses, including an adjustment for the timing and risk of those cash flows. And what we call the contractual service margin. It's the expected profit from providing future insurance coverage under those contracts. Now, the premium allocation approach or PAA is a simplified measurement model for short duration or short term contracts the period for which an entity provides insurance cover is in therefore one year or less now under this approach a liability will be built up on the balance sheet that represents the future services to be provided by the insurer in terms of the contract it's unlikely you'd be able to use this approach for sales in which you have sold long term or life insurance policies, for example, the Create Life example that we've used. But for short term insurance, like the handset insurance in my example, there you might be able to apply the PAA approach.
0: Thanks for the inputs, dear Valt. I think it's pretty clear from our conversation thus far that IFRS 17 contains much more requirements when compared to IFRS 4, and this could actually have a material impact on accounting for these types of cell captive structures, as well as give us a lot to think about in terms of the presentation of our primary financial statements. We've covered quite a bit in this session. We discussed how to identify a first-party and a third-party sell captive arrangement, and we also touched on the scoping of each of these arrangements in order to better understand the accounting impacts. And from your last point, Deerwald, I think it is also evident that Ivory 17 is expected to also have a significant impact on a corporate's financial statements, specifically the income statement and balance sheet presentation. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Deerwald?
1: I think the important bit for me is that IFRS 17 can be quite complex. So, for me, the key takeaways of our chat this morning would be that IFRS 17 will not only apply to insurance entities. Corporate entities need to be on the lookout for structures or contracts through which they accept significant insurance risk. If that is the case, um, corporate entities with, with third party cell arrangement in particular, right, will have to aware of the requirements of the new IFRS 17 standard and start working on getting the information that they may require to implement the new standard. Like I mentioned before, the data requirements of the new standard are granular and extensive. This should not be underestimated. Corporate should also not forget about the potential impact in standalone financial statements for certain of those first party arrangements.
0: I agree, dear Walt. The accounting impact if deemed to be material, should then already start to make its way into a corporate's disclosures as part of the impact of new standards and interpretations. Thanks for joining us today in the studio, Diewald. Thank you for sharing great insight on cell-captive arrangements and what corporates need to think about in anticipation of IFRS 17. We actually hope to have you back soon to discuss policyholder accounting in a bit more detail for corporates. I know you did touch very briefly on that a bit earlier on saying we need another episode. You've been such a great insurance expert. I'd say your view should come at a premium.
1: (laughs) Thanks for having me, Sria. It was great joining you on this podcast, and I hope to be back in the aisle soon, looking up at the top shelf.
0: This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the South African member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com forward slash structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.